Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. It's with great pleasure that I have special guest and author, Kelly Harrell. She has a book that has recently come out. It's entitled Runic Book of Days, A Guide to Living the Annual Cycle of Rune Magic. Runes have interested me for a while. I really think that this particular topic this evening should be very interesting for our guests and entertaining and insightful. Runic Book of Days is a step-by-step guide to working with the runes throughout the year. Our author will explain how the 24 runes of the Elder Futhark each rule the calendar for a half month, and she details the runes' most powerful, I guess, influence during each runic half month, what they portend for personal and spiritual well-being, and techniques for creating relationships with them. This book includes structured devotionals for each half month and runic initiation, rituals for the eight pagan Sabbaths or holy days, such as the summer solstice, and the first harvest holy day. The Old Norse runes, known as the Elder Futhark, have long joined forces with the cycles of the seasons to offer powerful initiations, guidance, and wisdom. Aligning the sacral festivals, plantings, and harvest of ancient runic calendars with our modern 12-month calendar, Harold reveals how the runes can once again offer initiations as well as instruct us on the holy days and created rhythms of today. Drawing on her more than 25 years of shamanic practice and runic study, we will learn a step-by-step primer to work with the runes throughout the year. It's with great pleasure that I introduce Ms. Harold to the show. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for, for agreeing to be on our show this evening. I really have a, a strong interest in this. I, I will tell you that I did pick up a set of runes a few months ago, but... I, when I was looking at your book, I, I noticed that you talked about your earliest experience trying to work with runes, and at first it was uh-huh. a pretty frustrating situation for you, experience for you, yeah. and I wanted to see if you could share <laughs> that with our audience. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you have to kind of keep it in context. This was back in the late 80s and the early 90s, and there just weren't resources, not like we have them now. There was no internet. There weren't all the books and and scholars that we have now. And so there was really only one book. Do you know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, well, you know, so this this one resource was the one that everybody turned to, and it, it wasn't a very good one, and, but we didn't know that at the time. And so I couldn't figure out why the book didn't work for me, but the runes themselves spoke to me. Like just upon touching them, they did, and it took me a long time to understand that the runes were this entity that existed for thousands of years, and that this one person was the introduction that I had to them, and he did a lot of things that were inaccurate, at least historically inaccurate, in working with the runes. When I made that connection, I put the book down and just started working with the runes themselves. 
That's interesting. I know what I would like to ask you, and I'm sure our audience is curious about this, in reference to understanding what runes are, I know that they mm-hmm. represent, they, they derive from Scandinavian countries and uh, Germany and England, and they represent like Northern Europe's attempt, or no, I should say attempt, it was an early alphabet at first, is that correct? That's right. They, they weren't a, a, a magical system or divination system until much, much later. So that's one thing that kind of makes the runes unique. They have this mythical origin story that gives them this, this credence to, um, to want to learn them. And I'm sure, at least at the time that they were in use as a language, it would have been a very culturally binding thing to have this amazing story of a god delivering your alphabet. So you're right in that it, it was a long time later that they became used for magical purposes. Tell me a little bit about, I know that God Odin was the original with the Elder Futhark, and you've worked with that for about 20, over 25 years. Is that right? The runes themselves and your right. knowledge of them? And right. I guess one of my first questions with you would be, when, when Odin, uh, my understanding is he went over to, what I, I'm going to not use the original terminology, because I don't want to butcher how I say it, but the, he went over to the world tree, and that runes were representative of keys, and they represent mysteries of nine Norse worlds. And I wanted to see if you could explain that a little bit to us, just as a little background about the history of what runes are and how they fit into the mythology of Norse. Uh, cosmology, I believe, with the cosmos? I think that it's challenging to do that because we we don't know very much. You know, what we do know okay. is derived from like three texts are um, translated and a lot, a lot gets lost in translation. And so nobody really knows what that story is. But what they've puzzled together is that Odin endured what's considered an ordeal in the old Norse shamanic perspective, which means that he subverted his physical state. He he hurt himself, essentially, to reach these higher brain waves that allowed him an out-of-body experience, and he found the runes in that experience. And for him, that ordeal was hanging upside down um, stabbed with his own sword from the world tree for nine nights. And the idea that we take from that is that he brought the runes into human consciousness. And I think there are a lot of interpretations of what that means, because we know from those same texts that the runes existed before he he did this. They were mentioned before in that they were given to the dwarves and to other races what we understand from it is that they weren't necessarily applicable to humans or how we lived, or we didn't really maybe know how to use them in this magical way, and that's what he made available through his ordeal. There's a very messianic component of his bringing the runes back from the world tree. Interesting. I find that um, with reference to how we would try to compare runes, and I know you do this in, in, your, in your work, um, the Runic Book of Days, comparing their 24 cycles, I believe, uh, their half-month cycles that we apply to our 12-month calendar. And mm-hmm. in terms of understanding how they play out with the Elder Futhark in 
our understanding of it from our modern perspective, how would you recommend, say, a novice who's in our audience right now has no understanding what runes are at all? How would you recommend that they would decipher that and understand what they would do uh, to apply the runes in those half-month calendar cycles to our 12-month cycle, our modern calendar? I think that one of the things that Nigel Pinnock did in, in the calendar that he derived, which is what my work is based on, is give us a really logical seasonal flow of how the runes would have been placed in the Old Norse um, culture, applicable at least to the people in the Northern Hemisphere. It gets a little fiddly if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. So. It, it nicely fits this, you know, these 24 runes into our 12-month year. And so I, I tried to make it sort of like it, a day planner approach to how we would work with the runic calendar that Nigel Pennick developed. And we have these two-week chunks, which we can take, you know, this rune in its season. And you can jump in the book at any point. You don't have to wait to, you know, start at a certain time. And, and just read the descriptions of the runes for each, you know, half month and kind of work with the prompts that are in the book for each half month rune. And I think two weeks is about long enough because, you know, when, when you study things like this on your own, you can kind of fall down rabbit holes where you get a little stagnated and, and you're not really sure if you're having success with this one or you really don't like that one or um, you know, this one you have an affinity to, but, but two weeks gives you a boundary so that you have enough sort of saturation that you can do the prompts and, and feel some movement, personal movement in that work, but then you have this end point where you're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to take that and this is what we learned and we're going to move on to the next one in season. Uh, one of the things I was looking at when I, when I, when I was re reviewing this stuff is there's mentions, and I want to see if you could explain what that exactly is and how it applies to our, our understanding of what runes are. Those are the texts that we have that are in languages that we don't even have a lot of context for anymore. Like even in modern Scandinavian languages, they still struggle to understand what some of those words and concepts are. That's how old the runes are in terms of our ability to trace them back through our ancestral lines. And so the Eddas, the, um, the poetic and prose Eddas, are these texts that are left from generations ago. And it's interesting because Snorri Sturluson wrote the later Edda, and he wrote it at a time that the northern part of Europe was being Christianized. And so kind of the understanding is he was, you know, that he was like retranslating it for this modern audience. That's kind of the, um, the story that he laid out for why he was retranslating these texts. But modern scholars read what he did with the elder text and feel like he was trying to remind younger people that they didn't always um, start out as Christian, that they were um, ethnicities and cultures of their own that had lasted for thousands of years before Christianity ever came there. So there's kind of a little play going on between those texts. And I guess trying to understand a cohesive message from the different texts 
is a, is probably one of the greatest challenges for us to really get to the bottom of, of our interpretation modern wise of these runes because of that. Is that would that be accurate? Because of the challenges with these original okay. It is. And I would, so we're just kind of relying on people who would know these languages better than we do, who would know these cultures better than we do, because you know, we don't have any direct correlation to them anymore. I do like to bring up the fact, and this is something I found fascinating when I'm studying this topic, is every single day we have a rune sen- signal in our lives that we have on our phones and that, or our other devices, which is the Bluetooth uh, signal yeah. device. It's very interesting that that worked its way into our particular um, modern technology and culture. Well, I was just agreeing. Yeah. It is interesting, the, yeah. the sigils that work their way down. I find that fascinating because it's something we look at every day and we don't realize that they arise from roots. Most of them, mm-hmm. unless you're, that's like a Jeopardy question. What are, <laughs> what are staves in the context of understanding runes? Some people use that as an interchangeable word. And like, you know, some people will say rune or stave as if it's the same thing. But for some people, it's a very specific um, way of working with the runes. I'm I'm familiar with the Scandinavian approach to working with the runes, like literally not referring to the entire northern region as Scandinavian, but, you know, Scandinavia as in lower areas now, where they literally work with sticks. And the sticks have a rune carved on each one. And so, you know, they would read them like we would normally read if they were tiles. But because they're sticks, they have the capability of overlapping each other when you throw them so that the sticks themselves form actual runes. And that is what some people mean when they refer to the word staves. It's it's literally the formation of sticks as they fall and identifying runes in those as well as runes that might be carved onto each individual stick. Interesting. I know that some have interpreted runes to be a divination device, a divination tool. I want to ask you, as I was reviewing this, some have made the mistake of trying to compare runes to tarot cards. And I wanted to get your opinion as to why there's a sharp, a stark difference between the two. I, I think most people are very intimidated by the runes because they look at them and they're just kind of these little you know, scribble-looking um, signs. And and when we look at the tarot that we have now, there are so many beautiful, um, vivid visual decks that I think people tend to gravitate more to the tarot because they are readily identifiable. And the runes kind of get left out in that regard um, it, it really takes a bit more knowledge of the cultural backdrop of the runes to understand where they came from and why they would still be relevant. And, and I think that's just a harder to do than with the tarot. Your book itself is broken into, I believe, two main parts. Part one, we've kind of already discussed briefly the history of the runes. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little about their organization. How do you mean in terms of how the, sure. the food bark itself is ordered? Can be a little more specific. Our alphabet has 26 letters, modern alphabet. How are right. the runes in comparison? How are they organized in comparison to our modern alphabet? There's really not a comparison. Um, the word food is derived from 
one of the older inscriptions of the Elder Futhark, and they are, it just comes from the first six letters that's in that inscription. And that inscription set the way that we order them. Nobody's really sure. I mean, it, it you know, it's possible that, that we would find potentially older inscriptions of these, not likely, but it could happen. Um, and, and it would change the ordering. And in reality, there have been other inscriptions found, and they were in a different order. Um, some of them, most of them end in Othala, the one that most people are familiar with, but some of them have Othala as the second to last rune and Degas is the last rune. And in other orderings, um, where you have Sehu as the first rune and Uruz as the second, they actually have Uruz as the first rune. So there, there's a little bit of argument around exactly what the order should be, but it doesn't necessarily have any bearing on what the ordering of our modern alphabet is. When you are trying to learn how to work with runes, what strategies would you recommend to a novice who's just delving into this and trying to learn about it? I think my answer to that is a little more off the wall than probably most people's would be. I think that having a, a general knowledge of what they mean is important, but where the personal relationship, the direct relationship to them really comes in is in the Galder, which is chanting them. And for some people, again, we don't exactly know what their pronunciation should be. The only reason we have a basis for what we think the Elder Futhark pronunciation would be is because we do have documentation about Futharks that came later, and they are very similar. They're not the same, but they're similar. And so we we kind of have a good idea about what they would have sounded like. In all of the spiritual work that I do in my practice, I heavily emphasize somatic awareness, meaning when you feel something in your body, you you become neurologically wired for that thing. And and when you feel it, you can reproduce the feeling that it gives you. And so when you galder the runes, when you make the sound of each rune and, and really sit with it as a chant in your body, you feel it. And I I think you connect with it a little better, a little less intellectually and more at a personal primal level. I think when you, uh, earlier in the introduction part of your, the early part of your book, you mentioned the fact that the first time you came in contact with runes, you had a tingling feeling in your hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was that based on, I know you have an intuitive background and you also have a, you've done a lot of prior work since 2000 as a shaman. Is it something that you just innately felt from the runes themselves? Can you explain a little further for us? I had never at that point been able to get a form of divination to work for me. Like, you know, I would pull cards and and they just may as well be blank. I mean, none none of them resonated. They, it just didn't work. Even things like um, pendulum or, uh, I'm afraid to put this out there, but like anytime I worked with talking boards, they wouldn't move at all. And so um, I was truly surprised the first time that I touched the runes and I felt them. There was a tactile sensation from them. And I still, to this day, like every week I do 
a rune cast called the weekly rune that people can subscribe to and every week when i sit down to do that when i pull the runes i i wait i, I create the space i ask them to come in and I wait until specific ones, you know, like I feel them under my hand, and I know those are the ones that need to come out for this week. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you regarding when you're, you're reading runes, you talk about drawing versus casting, and I wanted to see if you could describe that a little further for our audience. Some people work very literally with the runes in that they cast them. I, I think you probably hear the word cast with runes more than you do um, working with the tarot or other forms of divination. But casting is is literally dropping them. And in that way, the way that they fall, the manner that they fall, tells you a little bit of the narrative of what they might have to say about your intention just as much as which actual runes came out. As opposed to in a reading, they tend to be a little more structured where you would draw them and you would say, okay, I'm going to set, this is my intention, and these are sort of the narrative components, like maybe three narrative components of that intention, and I'm going to draw one rune for each component of that intention. And so there, it's a little more linear, a little more structured when you draw them as opposed to casting them. What do you mean when you say spreads? And um, when you're trying to, to read your runes and you, you mentioned that there are spreads or predetermined arrangements or configurations. Um, mm -hmm. how, does that, how does that work in terms of trying to decipher as you, let's say, draw them or which, whichever these two methods you use? How would, how would the spreads impact that? I would assimilate a spread with drawing rather than casting, because casting is kind of like, you know, a paintball splatter, and, and we have some elegant interpretation of what that might mean according to our intention. I think more likely to be found in the tarot world, but it's crept into the way people do their rune work in that um, spreads are sort of predetermined methodologies for how you're going to lie out the runes. And a common one is like a past, present, future, where you would be working with three runes, and then you would draw a rune for each. And, and the designation for the spread would be perhaps right to left or up and down, left to right. And the spread, you know, you would lay the runes out according to which position is which component of the reading, past, present, or future. And I think that's that sort of spread layout is more flavor from the tarot world. When you're interpreting the runes, I believe you, you discuss the rune positions. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain that to us in terms of how the positions of the runes are critical for understanding them? I don't know if it is critical. This is another one of those things that people will argue very heatedly about. I did not work with reversals for probably the first 10, 15 years that I worked with the runes. I felt like they were challenging enough to just learn what they meant. I didn't need to add any, you know, any extra to that. But um, after I worked with them for a long time, I started to realize that when I would pull certain ones reversed, meaning upside down, um, they always came reversed in the same kinds of situations. There was definitely some pattern matching that was happening. 
And that's when I started paying attention to reversals. So a, a lot of people will say that, you know, reversals don't have precedence historically, and they don't. This is a fact, but somehow it has crept in. And, and a lot of people also say that that's another influence from the tarot, that it's a, it's a very modern way of reading the runes. I would say that that's probably one of the most important things is not to try to look at it through a modern set of lenses. Instead, try to take those lenses off and, and approach it from a different perspective, which would be trying to be as, or trying to understand the original meaning to each of these. How do you overcome the ambiguity associated with the original text when you're trying to practice gaining an understanding of runes itself with your uh, 24 cycles? I think that learning as much as you can about the culture and the time frame would give you a really good narrative for how the runes would situate and, and what they mean. And that's how I came to view them in this seasonal context. When I stum- I've, I've read Nigel Pennock's work for years. I was a complete fangirl of his work back in the 90s. And when I found his writing about the runic calendar, it, it clicked for me. All of that information finally clicked in a way that, that made sense. And it's, it's because you had to know what the cultural overlay was to be able to connect with them in a way beyond just a divination system. And so, you know, that, that was my first encouragement for anybody who wants to study the runes and to kind of not come through that tarot lens is to situate as much as possible into what the cultural readings and the cultural teachings would be. I think that the tarot, I'm sorry, that the runes are more like the I Ching in that regard than the tarot. And that's another one that is, you know, mainstream wise, people just don't know a lot about it. What has been the greatest challenge you've had with working with runes that you haven't talked about in your book that would be something you would likely highlight as a, as a secondary factor as, in terms of your own growth, personal growth with these? There's a huge fear factor with the runes, I think, because they're very academic. I mean, you know, they, we don't exactly know where they come from, what they mean, how they're pronounced, and yet there, there's tons of academia that is ready to just tear you to shreds if you present them in the wrong light. And so that, for me, was extremely intimidating. The other part of that is the runes have been incredibly abused. They have been brought into, um, you know, white supremacist components. And, and recently, even though this isn't something that was, you know, a long time ago, it just in the last couple of years, there's been a resurgence of using them in white supremacist groups. And so... Coming over that and and making peace with how they have been misused and still being able to find the strengths that they bring and the wisdom that they bring and the culture that they represented long before they were ever misused, I, I think those are the challenges for me. That's a great point, especially in the context of where we are in our society in recent times. Yeah. I would say that's definitely one of those challenging aspects of things. Runes themselves, I believe the history of them, they've gone back to 200 BC. Is that right? 
Mm-hmm. Inscription is from 200, 200 BC. Is that what you were going to say? I didn't want to cut you off there. That's right. Tell us a little about how they're divided. I think they're divided into what's called three families. They are, and I don't know exactly where that originated. Some people, you know, argue heavily that that the groupings don't really matter, but they're divided into what are called ets. There are three ets, and um, again, some people say that's completely irrelevant, and then other people argue very heavily that each of these three groups has a sort of progression. They have sort of an umbrella um, narrative that you you kind of move through the first et, and then you move into the narrative of the second, and then finally the last one. Practitioners like yourself study these, that we might be able to uncover uh, some of the deeper meanings of these runes over time? I would hope so. And I, I feel like that's where the personal relationship to them comes from. They have to stay relevant somehow. And they have managed through some force to remain relevant all this time. And so, I mean, I would think there has to be another frontier for how we connect with them and and continue to find them relevant in our spiritual growth. Their book itself is organized, part two, and it's entitled Living with the Roots. And it's it's organized into the two-week cycles, and you have individual chapters for each. And I wanted to see if you can give us an overview first off how these particular chapters are organized and where they fall in interpreting working with the runes, how, how you would, I guess, apply what your, your methodology for this on a, on a daily basis or, by, you know, twice a month basis. Yeah, the, um, after you kind of get the, the bones of the runes from the first part, the second part really delves into taking that knowledge and making it really personal on a, on a seasonal scale. And what I feel like is most significant from that is really rooting into the nature and season of where you stand. You know, like one of the kind of the arguments in the general pagan community now is that, you know, we don't all have the same Sabbath. We don't call them the same things anymore. They don't happen at the same time necessarily. I mean, yes, the the stars and the planet are where they've always been, but the way we're experiencing our climate is very different, and that makes the way we observe our seasons very different. So I really encourage people to get out and stand in their own nature space and see how their season feels to them and bring the runes into that experience. So kind of on a daily basis, some of the prompts encourage you to notice the season and be out in it and work with the current half-month rune to do that. I think that's great, um, being able to reconnect like that with nature itself and incorporating it into the devotions to the runes. Can you tell us a little about the June 29th to July 14th cycle, which is, I want to make sure I pronounce this right, Sehu, manifesting the sacred self? That's right. Yeah, Sehu is the rune of wealth. And so the focus that we have with that is coming into how we value ourselves and the aspect of ourselves we can potentially connect with. And some people might call that like a a higher self or big self. But our ability to connect with that aspect of ourselves and realize that it is as valuable as 
spirit guides or as ancestors, we have so much emphasis on finding a higher power and identifying helping spirits and spirit guides that we forget the wealth of our own transpersonal self, our own higher self. And so that's kind of what I wanted to to focus on in the, the initiation and devotion part of Behu, moving into Ur-Urs. And I, I actually think one of the best ways to go through this is to go through some of these uh, just to highlight and show their individual differences and meanings uh, for each cycle. Uh, Uru's, the greeting shadow, as you call it, is July 14th to the 29th. How does Uru's differ from Fehu, for example? Well, in, ter- in literally speaking, see, I could like talk for hours on that. You're going to have to be more specific. <laughs> um, okay. Uru's is very connected to the sacred feminine, which in the Old Norse culture would have been the aurochs named Arumla. She was the divine feminine principle. And it's interesting because Fehu is cattle, which is this very earthly, um, not at all a goddess, you know, cow that we would have relied on for our livelihood back in the day. It would have been our currency, our money. And then we progress from this sort of everyday cow to this expression of divine feminine that is represented by the aurochs, which was like wild and untamable. And the idea in that progression seems to be that we have to understand how to value ourselves at a deep spiritual level, all of ourselves, and find wealth in that and realize that there will always become parts of ourselves that we don't know. There, there will always be shadows. There will always be these aspects that no matter how much, you know, how much spiritual work we do and how much self-improvement we do, there will be shadow. And we have to be really comfortable with confronting that and realizing that once we confront it, it isn't shadow anymore. You're bringing it to light and addressing it, it sounds like, would probably be the best way to approach that. Yeah. July 29th, August 13th, Thurisaz and Lamas, uh, finding mm-hmm. personal divinity. Uh, can you tell us a little about how that, how does cycle, me, how does cycle's meaning is unique in terms of interpreting the runes during this time period? The mm-hmm. feeling that I have around Thurisaz is it, it's a very conflict-oriented rune. And in, in, at least in modern culture, we have a really difficult time situating divinity in the everyday and coming to grips with the realization that they are not and were never separate. And so that's sort of the focus of that that cycle, that half month, and that when Lamas brings a sort of initiation, if you want to call it that, to be able to understand that you have to be able to find divinity where you stand. It isn't it isn't three states away. It's it's not in a jungle, uh, you know, on a tourism trip. It's where you are. It's where your feet are, and that's that's kind of the focus of that one. Looking at these and having you describe it, it sounds to me like it's a way of of me- um, meditated having meditation and reflecting during these cycles, and trying to structure your paradigms to these different concepts. Would that be accurate? Yeah, life lessons, that's I a good way to it. Okay. I'm just trying to gain an understanding here. And I think it, the way you lay it out in your book is great. I really do like how you have deciphered these. The August 13th, August 29th cycle is Anzus, 
speaking your personal truth. Can you tell us what you mean when you say speaking your personal truth and how it relates to this cycle? Amasus is the rune of Odin in that it's interpreted as Odin's breath. It, people say mouth and, and that it is about his breath. And what is significant in that understanding is, you know, as, as the god of the day, you know, he, he was the god of their time, he would have been the being that everything came alive for and through. And so when we get to Ansu's in this progression of the runes, we begin to understand that we are alive and breathing, in, theoretically, because of Odin and, and the breath that he has given. And so, you know, the question kind of becomes, what are we doing with it? <laughs> like if if that's what he did with his, what are we doing with ours? And maybe how could we speak better and, and potentially uh, listen better to the people who are speaking around us? I, I would also say that it's an aspirational goal on how to <laughs> aspire to live your life to a certain standard. That's what these sound like to me as, you, as we're going through these. Would that be accurate? I think so, yeah. And kind of the beauty of, of doing this in an annual cycle is you don't have to do it all in two weeks. You don't have to be <laughs> perfect at each one of these in two weeks because they'll be there next year. And the cycle repeats every, <laughs> every two weeks. Right. <laughs> I'm looking at the August 29th to September 13th cycle. Rato, telling your story. Can you uh, describe this particular cycle for us? And it's Rato is... It, it's interpreted as travel, and but when you when you really read up on the lore around Grido, it talks about our ability to take how we speak our truth from Ansu's and decide what we're going to do with it. It is the point that we have to kind of decide the story that we tell versus the life that we actually live, and maybe those things match up, and and we hope that they do. But there is a sort of formulate building that happens one rune to the next. And Rido is the point that we start to put Ansu's to work. That's interesting. Let's discuss Kenaz and Mabum. If I said that right, I hope I did. Uh, September 13th to the 28th, meeting the personal metaphor. What do you mean when you mm -hmm. describe this as meeting the personal metaphor? Well, um, I think Louise Hay said this a million years ago, that um, we have a concept that is the individual, and then we have this concept of the collective. And it, and it ultimately is about who we are versus who we think we are. So it, it's ourselves versus this metaphor. And part of the work around Kenaz is being completely in the dark, and then there's this little spark that sort of clues you in. It gives you this opening to say, no, there's more. And I think that that ties in nicely with a progression of coming to understand more of the self. You know, we, we've come through this progression of speaking our truth and figuring out how to apply it. In us is the point that we become inspired and we learn to inspire. That's interesting. It's like bringing it together mm -hmm. from what, I like that, the culmination of the manifestation of it. I like the way that, that, that flows with that. I'm looking also here, and I didn't get to ask you about this yet, but I'd like to ask you now. 
you have um, half-month affirmations at the end of each of these sections. And I wanted to, right. to see if you can explain the purpose of the affirmations in terms of the context of understanding these cycles and how you would apply that to your understanding the runes and practicing with them. How would these affirmations tie into that? I feel like they're a distillation of everything that you've been reading in the book. And there's a point where you just reach saturation. You're like, okay, I've read the material. I understand what the rune means. And I want to go out and stand in nature and, and you know, be connected. But I need it reduced <laughs> to, to a very short, um, containable phrase. And I felt like closing each of those sections with just a really short affirmation would give people something that they can take with them. You know, they don't have to be the whole book all the time. They can just take these little kernels and, you know, maybe write them down on a note or keep them close by. And, and that's all you need to remember. September 28th, October 13th is called Gibo, Giving and Growing. What does it mean? What, what do you mean when you have this particular section entitled Giving and Growing? And how does it apply to interpreting the, the runes during this cycle? Gebo is the, it's considered the rune of partnership. And a lot of people just stop right there. Like you're going to get a partner, you're going to get in a relationship. But when you really think about what a partner or partnership means, it's about giving and receiving. And the ability to give and receive and express gratitude is directly connected to how we grow, to how we develop as as adults, as elders, as spiritual beings. And so um, this component of, of learning to give, learning to receive in a, in a mature way has everything to do with how we show up in community. That is the ultimate partnership. Especially when you're thinking about society being organized the way it is. I, I could see where that would be relevant for sure. To the 28th is one Joe, which is allowing joy. Can you just, you know, describe this further for our audience of what you, what this particular meaning is as to the Wunjo and allowing joy? Cool. Wunjo is the last rune in the first et. So, so theoretically, we're at the completion of a cycle when we get to Wunjo. And the completion of that cycle is having figured out that we are a spirit in form. And, and this it's sort of like our first rodeo where we're really excited about it. We've, we've figured out how to accomplish some things. And Wunyo is that state of just absolute things working in your favor. Whether, whether you did something to set it all up to work in your favor or it just happened to, um, there's this aspect of sort of law of attraction, but most definitely weird in the Old Norse sense, W-Y-R-D, of, of having pulled things together and shown up in such a way that it's just all working exactly as it needs to. It's pretty joyful. With reference to, to November 13th, Hegel has the yeah, same Yeah, it's not so joyful. Facing, <laughs> facing fear and not finding so faith. joyful. <laughs> he tells That's a little about that. kind of like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Interestingly enough, this is from, also during the Halloween period. Exactly. It, that's, it's kind of like a cruel joke. Um, <laughs> we go from the closing of the first et on, this, on a high note, a very high note, and we come back to reality. And that is sort of the, the theme of the second et is like, okay, 
You've learned how to be a spirit in form. You've figured out some of the universal laws. Now go do that beside your neighbor. Now go do that with your coworker and don't murder them. I mean, this it's really the point where you figure out how you thrive as an individual, but now you've got to level those skills up and do it among a ton of other people doing the same thing. So interesting how these are divided into these different areas. I find that very intriguing for myself. November 13th to the 28th is Nautis, Embracing Need. And I want to see if you could give us an overview of what, what exactly you mean when you have a Embracing Need as a description for this section. Nautis is considered the not this rune, like people, that's what they attribute to the way the word is pronounced. And it's about realizing that you need something, but you don't know what it is. And that, and that it, ridiculously horrible tension of knowing that. Like you, you kind of know enough to, to not know anything. And how you cope with that makes all the difference. How, how you deal with the tension. It isn't even so much about resolving the tension as how you deal with the tension and realizing that when you can deal with the tension, the need has already been met. So I know there's 24 of these. Um, one of my questions I'd ask you is, which of these half-month cycles resonates best for you directly, working with these, <laughs> and when you put together this particular book? Kiwaz, which is, let's see, we're going, we're going. It's the, it's the first rune of the third et. And again, all of the first runes hit hard. So you, you kind of have that same scenario play out again. You get to the end of the second act, you're kind of on a high note, and then, bam, he was. Um, and that's the rune that most people cringe when they see it. And for me, it is an incredible symbol of power. It's that point when you are in the weeds, you're absolutely in the battle, and you realize that you're losing, and there's nothing you can do to change it except completely change your strategy. And you don't have time to think about it. You have to change it right now. Go with plan B, and plan B is what works. Plan B is what brings you victory. And you would think that knowing that it's that optimistic, everybody would embrace that rune. But the reality is they're in love with plan A. It doesn't matter that plan B works. They love plan A. So I, that's the one that I resonate with the most. I, I, I'm I'm good at changing gears that way. That's interesting. I know we have about eight minutes left. With reference to the remaining runes, what other cycles would you wish to highlight for our audience? Because I, I, I know that I would strongly encourage them to purchase your runic book of days. In terms of, for our purposes for the show and closing out our interview, what, which of these other cycles do you think would be, I would say, your preferences for highlighting the meaning to the 14-day cycles. Which of these other ones would you wish to highlight as, I would say, others that resonate with you? Thala is a significant one for me because I do a lot of ancestral healing work in my soul practice. Um, Thala is the rune of our community literally um, what would have been our clan in the old Norse tradition, the people that we're probably mostly related to, and we have really established set of norms and guidelines and rules, and we're, we're really clear on what the boundaries are. 
but also um, Othala represents the ancestors, those who have gone before us and have wisdom that we need. And it represents how we are becoming an ancestor and what we're doing to leave things better for the people who come after us. I find that message is one that we need to hear over and over in our culture now. I, I think that's a, a very important one for sure. I want to ask you this. I didn't get a chance to get into your background as much as I'd like to right now, and I want to spend a few minutes highlighting what you do personally. In reference to your personal work, I know that you are a highly intuitive individual. You're also an interfaith ordained minister, and you've worked as a shaman for about almost 19 years, and you have a master's degree in religious studies. Can you tell us a little about your particular practice? I know it's soul intent arts, and if, our, if our, anyone from our audience would be interested in contacting you, and working directly with you on this, uh, with you know, with your spiritual work, um, can you tell them a little about how they would find uh, your? Con- I know you have your website, but I want just to see if you can, you know, describe overall. I think your website soulintentarts.com, and I'll, I'll just, I wanted to see if you could just share with our audience the best way that they could reach out to you, and ways that you incorporate not only runes but your spiritual practice in general. If you can just describe your experiences for our audience to understand you better with your background. I have worked with others for quite a long time to help them with soul tending, when whatever that may be, if it's a healing component, if it is education, learning to be more animistic in finding their spirituality in the nature where they live, really the the whole base of what modern shamanism might encompass. And I teach intensives, you know, two and longer extended year intensives that help people learn their calling and how to bring their calling forward to community. And um, also a lot of different runes courses, short and long runes courses that help people come into relationship with their runes or just learn the basics of them also. And I do a weekly podcast called What in the Weird? that is um, right now moving through the progressions of the half months. We talk about them. And also just kind of real-life dynamics that come up as we're progressing through the half months and what they mean and how we can handle them better. And I am probably most reachable through Instagram at Kelly Soul Art. Excellent. Your work as a shaman. I find shamanism extremely interesting and very intriguing for me. What's been your greatest experience you'd like to share with our audience? Spiritual work with being a shaman. Oh, hands down, death walking. Hands down. Um, that was, death walking is helping the dead move on. And that was the thing that happened in childhood that I didn't know what it was. Like I wasn't raised in a, a community that understood that, but I saw the dead as a child, and I've, I've seen them lifelong, and it took me a long time to understand why, but um, death walking, helping souls that have moved on or, or have died, but they're stuck, or people who are living but know that they have very short time and they want to understand how to be more mindful as they approach death and, and what what that might mean for them. That That is absolutely the most profound part of the work that I do. What prompted you to become involved with runes itself? 
as a practice for yourself? They they were the first things of, of a tactile nature that spoke to me. And I mean, I, I tried everything. I, I I just explored all these different things, and and it was interesting, but it didn't resonate. And the runes were the first thing that resonated for me. That's interesting. I I like that. I know we all have our own individual strengths and interests, and um, I like I like the way you you, you describe that. How did you begin your spiritual path? I had gone through a very, very dark time and had an extremely traumatic childhood. And I did all the traditional stuff, you know, all the medication, all the therapy, and realized that there was just part of me that felt gone. And so there was a point that I knew that I needed what was called a soul, what is called a soul retrieval. And it took me a long time at that point to find somebody who could do that kind of work because it just wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And doing a soul retrieval, you know, I was strictly end user. I just wanted to get better in my own life. But about six months after doing that, my spirit guide started saying, you can't stay on the couch. You you have to take this awareness and do something with it. And that's when I began to formally study all these different approaches of soul healing. That's great. Your classes and the seminars that you offer, do you offer them in person or online? Right now, most of them are online. Most people seem to prefer going at a self-paced clip. And so I offer everything that I do as a self-paced study online with very heavy mentoring that involves, you know, live video sessions. Excellent. And anyone who's interested in wanting to sign up with a class could go on your website, soulintentarts.com. Is that right? That's right. Great. I want to ask you as a closing question, uh, since you have ground you have, I wanted to ask you, what spirit animal do you best connect with personally and why? A barred owl. Um, (laughs) I I would really... I would have never chosen that for myself, but that is who chose me a long, long time ago. And um, they are, they are, they tolerate no crap. And and I really admire that. They're very tough love and they, they, they just see through all the boundaries and, and above all the boundaries. Excellent choice. I want to thank you for coming on. We're winding down the show at this point. I want to really thank you for sharing your time with us today, providing a phenomenal, I wouldn't say summary, but I'd like to say a a breakdown of of really understanding runes and and studying them and and, and applying them. I want to ask you, you you, what's next for you? What do you have coming up next? Is there any, are you you going to travel for your your book or is there anything (laughs) going on down the road for you? I just figured I'd ask you that Um, for our audience if there's anything you'd like to share. The next book that I'm I'm working on like four books at any given time, but I think the next actual book, (laughs) thank you, the next (laughs) actual book is going to be on what it means to be a spiritual elder, how to elder spiritually in a culture where we have not had good examples, and in many cases we do not have ancestral elders. I love that, especially in the times that we're living in right now where there seems to be a breakdown in a lot of that and a lot of our society. So that sounds like a great topic. When you do that 
Uh, when do you expect this to be completed? The next, your next book. <laughs> You're so optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, but I'm I'm hoping by the end of this year. I would love to welcome you back on in the future when you debut your future books. And uh, I really appreciate you being a guest this evening on our show. Thank you so much. (laughs) You really did a phenomenal explanation of this topic. And I think the mystery of the runes themselves have been deciphered not only by your book, but through this episode, at least the ones we were able to, you know, discuss. So thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your knowledge of this very important area with us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Have a great night. Thank you. I just want to thank Ms. Harold for coming on to the show this evening and sharing her knowledge of working with runes. Uh, this has definitely been a very informational and I'd like to think it's, clari- it's clarifying for me to learn about these, uh, how runes can work in our lives and the 14-day cycles, incorporating that into our daily routines and trying to incorporate the ideals that are inherent in these 24 cycles, a calendar half month. Uh, I encourage you, if you have further interest in this topic, to definitely pick up Ms. Harrell's book, Runic Book of Days, A Guide to Living the Annual Cycle of Runes, uh, Rune Magic. And I would definitely think that you'll have a great read with this topic. Ms. Harrell's website, soulintentarts.com. And she's Kelly Solarts at Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Thank you for supporting our show. And if you have any questions or you'd like to contact me directly, you can reach me at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Electric acid.